When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. Food banks, they're providing a vital role this winter. And Trussell Trust supports more than 1,200 throughout the United Kingdom. In this special programme, their chief executive, Emma Reevey, briefs supporters about their progress and their plans for the future. So in terms of a little bit of context, as you're already aware, COVID presented us with like massive challenges across our network of food banks, and they continue to be under significant pressure. We distributed 2.5 million emergency food parcels last year, with just under a million of those being directly provided to children, which is two parcels a minute to children of emergency food aid um, being distributed in our country. And as many of you will know, that's just from within our network. There are many um, independent food banks or food aid provision that popped up during the course of the pandemic. So it really highlights the scale of needs we've been seeing in our community. And the reasons why people are coming to food banks haven't changed during the pandemic. It's just become more acute. And the reasons that the number one reason why we see people coming to to food banks is because they're experiencing destitution. Our research shows that 95% of people at food banks are at that point destitute. And that means they're unable to afford two or more of the basics that they need to eat, stay warm, stay clean or have shelter. Uh, And we know that the average household income of somebody coming to food bank is just £50 a week. And that remained the case during the pandemic. We continued to see people coming to food banks who were on those very, very low levels of income or had no income at all just before coming to a food bank. And so with the the cut to universal credit, which is just a devastating blow to six million low income families across our country, we are very concerned about what that means for the coming months. We've campaigned really hard um, over last year to have, first of all, that uplift universal credit maintained and it was extended by six months and then to try and prevent it being cut at all. Um, But we were unsuccessful, though we're not giving up. We're hoping that might still be reversed. But what it says, what what it leaves us with is a situation where our benefits are at the lowest level they've been at for for 30 years. And in fact, we're experiencing a cut um, that hasn't the largest cut social security since the Second World War. And so in whilst we were campaigning to try and prevent this cut, we did some research with YouGov as to what the impact of that cut might be on people. And we, in, in, as part of that research, we spoke to people who are already on universal credit and who had the uplift of £20 applied. And 77% of them, which is about the equivalent of 4.7 million people, said that even with the uplift in place, they were struggling to pay their bills and to avoid going into debt. 1.2 million people said they were very likely, if the cut came into effect, to have to skip meals as a result. 
1.3 million, about 21% of people on universal credit, said they would be unlikely, very likely to be unable to heat their homes this winter. And bearing in mind that 40% of people who are on universal credit are in work, but in very low paid work, 800,000 people said that they would struggle to cover, cover the cost of travelling to work with the cut um, to universal credit. And for us within our network, the statistic that 900,000 people, so about 15% of people on universal credit, said it was very likely that they would need to use a food bank as a result of the cut. I was just um, Conservative Party conference and we had a number of events there and, and one of them was attended by the chair of Manchester Central Food Bank, who's an incredible guy, Matthew. And something he said has really stayed with me um, as, as part of those panel events. And he said, people talk about the uplift universal credit as having been a temporary uplift because of an emergency that we were undergoing during the pandemic. He said, why is it that nobody considers it an emergency? that there are thousands of people in Manchester who are unable to feed their families or heat their homes this winter. Why is that not an emergency? And I think that is how we feel. We're coming into a situation where this emergency is going to continue for many people and be exacerbated for others. Um, our food banks that had to close their doors but move to delivery models during the pandemic have now reopened their doors in large part. And some of them are still doing a bit of a hybrid model where they're delivering food but opening their centres to support people. And part of the reason why they've opened up their doors and it was so painful for them not to be able to see people in person during the pandemic is because of that need to provide wraparound support, to understand what is driving why somebody is coming to a food bank and, and work with them on tackling that underlying crisis. So our food banks are, are open and they're, they're, they're receiving people back into centres, but they are braced for a significant increase in demand as we come in to this winter. And I think we're also working very closely with other independent food aid providers that have come into being during the pandemic and are can see no end to the need for their provision. Because one thing that's really important for us is that we keep a focus on the fact that food is not the answer. People who are coming to food banks are there because they can't afford the essentials, only one of which is food. So the answer can't ever be uh, just a further proliferation of food aid provision or further food aid being distributed. Um, but rather that focus on that wraparound support, ensuring that people get the money that they need in order to be able to afford the essentials themselves. So that's the context in which we have been operating and a little bit about the context in which we're about to start operating as we come into winter. I know you, I haven't managed to sort of catch up with you since you've been at the Labour and Tory party conferences. Been, I think it'd be really interesting um, maybe just to hear your your reflections on the kind of conversations that were happening there, a bit of your sense of the political landscape as we move into you know, what, you know, very tough winter. Mm. Um, it's really incredible, actually, to be able to engage uh, at both party conferences around the issues that people coming to food banks are experiencing and the issues that our food banks are experiencing. And I would say uh, at both party conferences, there was significant engagement and proactive and positive engagement with the issues. Um, what what is interesting is that um particularly in this last week where i've been at conservative party conference and um, there is a, a, an acceptance that there is a problem 
um, across the board in those conversations that um, destitution and increasing levels of destitution is a problem that needs to be addressed. I think we saw that reflected in the Chancellor's announcement of uh, increasing a further 500 million into local crisis response for over the winter period. Um, I think where, where there is disagreement is around the wider levers that can be used to tackle that. And so we see, we've seen the cut to universal credit, which is not universally accepted um, within, within the Conservative Party. There have been, there's been strong voices speaking out against the cut and, ad, and, and imploring um, the government to, to act differently. And I think that's, that's really encouraging. There's been a groundswell of support that this isn't the right decision. And therefore that dialogue and that representation is taking place at the highest levels and hopefully that gives us hope that even if the cut is not reversed that people are actively looking at what other things can be done that would help address um, the problems that that we know we're going to see over the coming months. Can I ask how you are ramping up for the winter? What measures are you taking? So lots. I think <laughs> a, a deep breath probably is the first step because I think um, for our for our volunteers and for our staff and food banks, they are tired, and I think it's a tiredness. It's not it's not that they haven't had some time off or had, had a little bit of a break here and there, but it's really hard to continuously see people who are really struggling and feel like there's only so much you can do to support them. So we have been trying as best as we can to support the well-being and the mental health of our volunteers and our staff and really drawing in closely with them, bringing them together over Zoom and in person where we can to just support them and encourage them. We're also um, speaking to our market partners um, about how we can increase collections in store. Honestly, we couldn't have got through this period of time without the incredible generosity of our market partners. We, we just we couldn't have the food wasn't there and they got it to us uh, and they enabled us um, to to be able to keep providing that support. And I think there's something for me in knowing the strength of those relationships that we have with our uh, market partners that we know we can turn to them if it gets bad again, if we see significant increases and in demand outstripping supply, that we've got a safe place to go and have a conversation about how we can increase donations in store. We've seen um, both in Tesco and in Asda increased um, pushes to have collections so as we can get more food into our food banks. And our what, what's incredible, and one of the things that I would I was going to mention in my next section is like our food supply kept pace with demand, <laughs> even though we were seeing extraordinary levels of demand, we, it was able to keep pace. I don't take that for granted, so please don't hear that. But I, there is a comfort uh, in that generosity of relationship that we have that we can, I know I can call and say, this is what's happening. And uh, and, and I've, the support we've received has been extraordinary. And um, there's also some work that we've been doing. And again, speaking with our market partners for advice as specialists and what, what does it mean, the issues with uh, drivers in terms of food supply? How might that affect the ambient food that people donate? And like some reassurance, it's more about fresh potentially than the kind of food that we see in, uh, in being used in food banks mostly. Um, but but just thinking through some of those logistics, what will it mean? 
we've we've been very blessed by the fact that we where we saw quite a lot of volunteers have to step away as we first went into the pandemic because of their age and their own personal vulnerabilities we saw a new cadre of volunteers step forward and now some of our volunteers that had to step back in the early days have been able to step forward again so we're really lucky that we've got a double bubble of volunteers being able to support us during this time but again not taking that for granted and just keeping an eye on food supply on volunteer supply on any limitations that might come in as we go into winter around covid and just ensuring that we're we're able to keep going but um it's an it's an ongoing thing that we're having to watch and be attentive to so the first thing I had wanted to raise was around the fact that our food donations had kept track. But I think now we have to be really attentive to that with higher fuel costs, the cut to universal credit, the end of the furlough scheme and winter just being more expensive. We always see a higher demand at food banks in winter because the choosing between whether you heat your house or, or, or buy food, those difficult decisions, those challenges push more people into food banks. So, um, we we are so grateful that food donations have kept going till now, but we will be attentive to that as we go forward. Another highlight has been our helpline, um, the Help Through Hardship helpline that we were able to establish. And we launched it with support from you uh, in partnership with Citizens Advice in April 2020. And the reason we launched it, we'd always wanted to do something with Citizens Advice where we put advice right up front before food in our engagement with people. Um, but the, the motivation for launching it very, very quickly at the start of the pandemic was the fact that local referral organisations that would normally refer people to food banks all closed overnight. So we were just desperately concerned that people would be out there in need of access to food bank, but not knowing where to go or how to be referred. Uh, and so we launched the helpline very, very quickly. Um, and from there, um, we have we've grown to having 40 um, specialist advisors who answer calls now from from people calling in on our free phone telephone number. And we've able, been able to answer 79,000 calls. And because of the advice that we've been able to provide on those calls, we have been able to put 17.1 million pounds back into people's pockets. So that and by that, I mean people not having got money they should have been entitled to, benefits that they were eligible for, but it was too complex for them to navigate and not knowing how they were able to get that. Through the advice that's been provided through that helpline, people have been able to get that money into their pockets. And the beauty of that is it's often not just a one-off payment that they've been we've been able to secure, but it's about increasing their income going forward so hopefully they won't have to access emergency food again. This has been incredible. And to go from zero to 40 agents, uh, people on the call answering calls has just been incredible. Um, however, we aren't able to answer every call um, just because of the sheer volume of calls that are coming in. And that, that just feels awful to us because what we know from the people who have been calling is nine out of 10 of the people we speak to have never accessed a similar type of support to that advice before. So it's a really valuable new service. It's not that people are switching from going to their local CA to calling the helpline. These are new people who hadn't accessed that support service before. And so our aim is to increase the number of advisors on that line from 40 to 120 this year. And we hope that that will allow us to get much closer to being able to answer all of the calls that are coming in. But we also want to do more wraparound support within that. So we're working with partners from across the sector and, and MIND are coming on 
in the near future to help provide with mental health support. So through one telephone call, somebody can be hooked up to all of the support that they might need. And if necessary, have a referral to their local food bank. But primarily, this is about ensuring that people get the support that they need. Uh, and so our goal is for this helpline to be owned by the wider sector, ensuring that people in crisis are able to have a smooth onward journey to get all the support that they need. So um, that's that's been something that's been incredible to be able to bring in to being so quickly and now see it being um, so helpful to people in crisis. Um, the other thing we've been able to do with your support is um, start to roll out our income maximisation programme. And part of that is the helpline by putting advice at the front of our support. But it's also about looking what, at what that means in local communities. At the moment, someone coming to a food bank can be guaranteed a warm welcome and that they will leave with emergency food. What we would like um, over the next three years is that anyone coming to a food bank can be guaranteed that warm welcome, that they will leave with emergency food, but they will also have been supported to maximise their income. And we know that there have been so many cuts to local advice services uh, and that it's therefore difficult sometimes for people to be able to access that advice. And we want people who find themselves in such a difficult circumstance that they are at a food bank to be able to access that support. And so we will be channeling funding to, through our food banks to procure local advice services to come into our food banks uh, and work with people who are coming to our food banks to ensure that they get the support that they need to not have to come to a food bank again. Um, we've already invested nearly two million uh, in this programme and about 28% of our food banks are providing financial inclusion services to people who are, are, are coming to food banks but we have big expansion plans over the next few years and I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in a moment. And the final thing I just wanted to raise as something that's been amazing over the last year is the work we've been doing in changing policy. So despite our disappointment at the cut to universal credit, we were able to secure with partners in the sector a six months extension to that up until this point. But also we've seen almost a billion pounds put into local welfare support over the last year and with this additional 500 million just announced by the Chancellor, which is something we had been campaigning for because we know that a crisis grant given to somebody in crisis can stop a short-term crisis turning into long-term hardship. So this is really important and we're, we're really delighted that we've made some, um, some headroads into that, into that area. But we've also seen real commitment from different parts of the UK into ending the need for food banks. And so we saw Nicola Sturgeon committing in Scotland that the Scottish uh, government would work towards ending the need for food banks and explicitly stating that commitment. Um, as we look into uh, the next few months, we're, we're looking at engaging government more, uh, focusing on the groups that are most affected and most find themselves coming to food banks. So obviously we'll be campaigning for the reinstatement of the £20 uplift to universal credit as part of the comprehensive spending review. But we also want to draw attention with the government to the prevalence of people who are struggling with mental health issues that, that come to food bank and the increase that we've seen in that. In uh, early 2020, about 51% of people coming to food banks said that they were struggling with their mental health. Uh, now it's, it's almost three quarters of people who are coming to food banks are struggling with that. We also know people's disabilities are overrepresented, significantly overrepresented. Over six in 10 people coming to a food bank have a disability. 
that's over three times more than the general population. And that's just not right. And that's something that we can definitely do something about in terms of changes to policy. Also children. So we've seen a 49% increase in the number of parcels to, given to children since 2018. That's, that's much higher increase than we've seen for adults. And that, that is a, a significant concern for us. We also know the members of ethnic minority groups are three times more likely to need to use a food bank. That's not right. We need to be looking at the structural issues that are driving people to experience destitution and, and having to come to food banks. And another area of concern that we've, we're working on with government uh, around policy change is that people aged 16 to 24 experience very high levels of food insecurity, but low levels of referrals to food banks. And so that would suggest to us them not being aware of how they can be referred or how they can access those services. And so we want to do something more about that. And these are things that are being discussed at the APPG on ending the need for food banks that we have, um, we are providing the secretariat for, and we're bringing politicians together from across the political spectrum to really wrestle with the issues of what needs to happen to end the need for food banks and what are the policy areas we should be focusing on. What regional differences are you seeing in food bank use in terms of numbers or other data? Um, so with that question, um, food bank use follows destitution indices in terms of communities that are disproportionately affected by high levels of destitution, see high levels of people needing to come to food banks and that correlation is, is, is almost like for like. What we also see as, and you'll have heard this before, but in communities that are the most deprived, um, local services are, are, are most threadbare in terms of we we see there's there's less ability for people to be able to volunteer and step into the voluntary sector because the communities as a whole are are struggling and you also see most pressure on uh, local statutory services and therefore they're least able less able to provide for the level of need that they're seeing in those communities so i think um if when you look at the the uh, uh, that's that's having said that there are food banks in communities that at first glance would appear um, very affluent. And so there are pockets of um, hidden destitution in communities across the United Kingdom in all four nations. But you, you definitely see, particularly for us um, in the Northeast, and we're also seeing in London, high levels of um, food bank use. And they've remained very high as we come through the pandemic. And we would imagine continuing to be high um, as we as we come into this winter. Um, but in general, the footprint feels very similar to where there's high deprivation indices in a community. Emma, do you want to sort of move on to anything else on income maximisation and any of the plans that we've got over the next few months? Yeah, sure. So at that, that goal of ensuring that everyone who comes to feedback has access to high quality welfare advice to maximise their income. We don't think it will end the need for food banks, that advice, but we think it's part of the solution because we know so many people are not accessing their full entitlement at the moment. And um, we know many people at food banks are and are still finding themselves at food banks, hence our changing policy agenda to ensure that 
people are getting as much money as they need through social security and local welfare assistance. But at the very least, something we can effect change on, something we can proactively do something about, is ensuring at the very least everyone has access to their full entitlement and is able to be supported to navigate our benefit system in the best way possible. As I say, we've already invested over two million pounds in this. So our hope is over the next three years to have those advice services throughout our network contracted with local provision. So as we have that expert advice located at that point of need, <clears throat> as well as increasing, and it's kind of a pincer movement, as well as increasing the advice that's available through the help through hardship line. So it's saying at the point where somebody might approach us about how they can get access to emergency food, the advice is at the front, but also at the point when somebody has arrived with us, in need of emergency foods at a food bank, they are also able to access that specialist advice. Um, and we, in order to do that in a strategic way, which picks up on Joe's question, to ensure that what we're doing is supporting local authorities and local advice providers and local organisations uh, in how we support people to access advice services, we're putting in place uh, a regional network of financial inclusion managers. And we've just, we've just started this process. These are specialists in providing income maximisation support and financial inclusion support. And they are helping our food banks to work together across a region to contract the very best support and to gather that data to be able to make the case for an investment in higher quality, well-funded advice services within a region um, and, and to form those relationships with local authorities who have the power to do something about that. So as well as that kind of structuring and making sure that we're, we're doing financial inclusion support in the best way possible, they're also gonna be supporting our volunteers um, to be good advocates and allies with people. It's not always possible for our volunteers to have the expertise and they become anxious about <clears throat> providing financial support. But what they can do is at that moment, like I, I've seen it many times that when people are asked to bring in the bills that they're not able to pay and maybe have not even been able to open those envelopes because it's a really scary process to have one of our volunteers who's very lovely who can just walk that journey with somebody and say, I'm just going to sit here with you whilst we go through this process. So that combination of the specialist advice from the, our specialist advisors, but also training and supporting our volunteers to be able to provide that solidarity and companionship for somebody as they're going through that support process um, is, is another important part of our financial inclusion managers roles. And there is also some <clears throat> triage advice that we can upskill volunteers to give more generally. So we're, we're looking at training for our volunteers, training for them as advocates, and also that networking of financial inclusion specialists across our network. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat. So financial inclusion is definitely our number one priority as we look as we look forward. But we have two other key priorities that I'd, I'd like to talk about. One is around our like local organizing and mobilizing. We've seen how people were willing to change the way they work, the way they live, um, the, the, everything about their lives in order to protect one another during the pandemic. That's just extraordinary. Like ch the change that was able to be brought around by, by people working together and considering together what was best for their community. We want to, to harness that groundswell we saw in support of our work. And so we're working 
at the moment with 19 of our food banks on the first phase of identifying what does it mean to mobilize and organize people who are really interested in tackling some of the issues that are driving people to food banks in their local community and that's made up of people with lived experience of having to uh, access our services people who are passionate advocates for for change within their communities coming together and looking at what things in their community they think can change and supporting them and equipping them to, to make that change. And so it's really important that this feels like it's owned locally and that people are able to talk about and work towards change with elected officials and with the services that are available in their communities to get the kind of change um, that they know needs to happen in that space. And so we're supporting that. So it's <clears throat> round our food banks is this circle of people who are passionate as well about ending the need for food banks and know best because they're living locally where those changes might need to take place. And then thirdly, for us, the importance of um, people with lived experience of poverty, of having to access our services, being at the in the driving seat of what we do as an organization is incredibly important to us. So looking at how we meaningfully engage with people with lived experience locally through our food banks, so as they can be more involved uh, in the decision-making that takes place in the policy and program development that we're doing and have a platform and support to tell their stories and to raise awareness and campaign for change is all central to our participation program that we're equipping and supporting our food banks with uh, across the network. Um, there are two key projects that we're also focusing on alongside that equipping role with our food banks. And one is a youth participation project that we're doing in partnership with Children in Need and the I Will Foundation. <clears throat> it's a two year programme that we launched um, over the summer and it's working intensively with 36 young people across um, the UK um, who have been recruited through our food bank network and community partnerships and they're working together with us to produce school and media resources to help talk about the issues of poverty and destitution and food insecurity to help us with our changing mind strategy so raising awareness and getting people really um, concerned with what it is that drives people to food banks drive what, what what's happening what does poverty feel like and how is it experienced by young people and what are some of the changes that those young people would like to see happening and the second thing we're doing is around, we, we've, we're establishing a Together for Change panel, our strategy is called Together for Change, but we have started um, by recruiting 12 partners with lived experience of poverty to join our Together for Change panel. Um, and that's to help us at Trussell Trust centrally to think more and plan better how we develop our strategy how we refine our programs of support for people in local communities and fundamentally help us drive and, uh, and be at that in that driving seat for um, bringing about change through using their experience that's been uh, their lived experience of, of poverty. And we're, we're really excited about this and really open to the learning that will come from that. Um, we, we have a lot of learned expertise within our organisation and we want to ensure that we provide an equal platform for lived experience and bringing those two together to see how we can craft the best solutions for, for change. Your holding of us and your partnership with us has been what's made it possible for us to keep going. And so just to say a, a massive thank you for your partnership over this last difficult period. So thanks very much for, for coming. Thank you.
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thank you for listening to this special edition of The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. If you would like to support the extraordinary work undertaken by the Trussell Trust, please visit trusseltrust.org.